As you know, I have children, lots of them, lots. And when you have lots of children, what it results in is that usually in your life there's more children because your children bring other children. So usually there are lots and lots of children uh, in my life. So I understand children. This is a church with lots of children, lots and lots of children. Um, and then there is the fact that I was a children. So I, I'm just telling you, I know what I'm talking about when I'm about to say this, that uh, when you're in a household of multiple children, there are you, I would expect, in most homes, there are a few rules that you just, they, they kind of go without discussion, a few things you cannot do as a child. In my home, growing up, and in my home currently, there is a standing rule that no boy may hit a girl. You cannot hit your sister, is the rule. It was the rule I grew up with. didn't matter if she punched me in the face. I could not hit her. It is the same with my children. They may not hit grace. Nonetheless, <laughs> there have been occasions where that has been an infraction. We'll just say that the sister has been hit. Now, what happens usually, by the way, it's almost always uh, provoked in some way, shape, or form. But what happens when the sister takes the hit is despite the excruciating pain that she may or probably is not feeling, there is a rejoicing gleam in her eye because she knows that the line has been crossed. And vengeance is now hers. And so there is, she's crying, but her tears of joy. And she'll get up, and she will make haste to the nearest parent, who really just wants peace, but she'll make haste to the nearest parent with like a siren. Mom! And she goes to this parent. Now, if you are the boy, as I know, you're in a little bit of a crisis because you understand the rule really doesn't have a lot of discussion, but you're smart enough. Children are smart. If you're spoiling your children, you need to know they're way smarter than you think they are. But if, if, if you are a child who's hit your sister and you're dealing with it, what you know is you may be able to soften the blow if you can get there first and pitch the I am a victim speech. There's always a primal advantage to making yourself look like the victim first, no matter if you're doomed or not. And so what happens is, is the brother, or in a hypothetical sense, me, I would rush, and it would be this race to get to the parent, and you show up to the parent, it's this ruckus event with how many, how many, he did, she did, he did, she did, he did, but, but, but mom, but this, but that, where the parent finally goes, silence, and then they arbitrarily pick a child. Uh, you know, he was yesterday, so now it's this person today. And he gets to go first. And when it finally comes out, it comes out that you hit her. Usually what will happen is the boy will begin to give a very long speech of how bad his life is. 
So it'll be like, but, you know, she stole my water ice, knocked my blocks over, I had a bad day, I have a boo-boo, school's not going well, no one likes me, and you kind of interrupt it with the sobs. <laughs> you do that as well as you can, as long as you can, hoping, hoping against hope that you can resurrect yourself from what you know is going to happen, but you know all your father cares about is, did you hit her? Doesn't matter how long your yarn is, did you hit her? That's the story. Did you hit her? It's a one-word story. Yes. Well, I say all this to say stories with more detail are not always necessarily better. Details and how you're trying to tell a story are two different kinds of things. They're two parts to what make up a story. Depending on how you're trying to tell a story, you may or may not need or you may or may not want more detail. And this is particularly important as we look at Scripture this morning because Mark never gives you extra detail. Well, you'll get occasional extra detail, but Mark is never heavy on the detail. Let me say it that way. When you read Mark, you, all, you almost always find yourself going, man, I wonder if there's more detail. And there usually is, and it's usually in another gospel, but Mark is trying to tell you something in a certain kind of way, which is what we're going to look at this morning. I'd like to start first, before we kind of tackle the story, I'd like to uh, deal with verses 14 and 15, kind of as they connect to last Sunday. So let me read 14 and 15 with you here. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's how Mark begins to talk about the beginning of Jesus' ministry here. And he he does it in two uh, brief ways. Two important things happen right here. The first thing, if if you take a look, is that Mark has rapidly progressed us away from the ministry of John and on to the ministry of Jesus. So 2 to 13 was dealing with the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus by John. We get to 14 and it says, after John was in prison. Well, if you've read the other Gospels, you know that it did not happen like that overnight. That there was a period of overlap. How how long, we don't quite know, but more than days, likely the months, where, where the ministry of John overlapped the ministry of Jesus. And there was even times where questions arose as to what do we do with this? You find that in the Gospel of John as they wrestle through that. But, but Mark doesn't want you to worry about any of that. Mark wants to get to Jesus. And you can just see how quickly and rapidly he progresses here. All he says is, after John was in prison. And he heads right on. That's the first thing you see. And here's the second thing that you see in 14 and 15. Mark presents us, right up front, the chief characteristics of Jesus' message. So... Whether or not Jesus actually said these exact words at this exact moment, I think is immaterial to Mark. I think what Mark is doing is he's captured these words and he's saying the ministry of Jesus can be encapsulated with this, these words. And he places them before you. And these are the words. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Those three things. The time has come. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe So what does he mean by that? Well, 
I think when he says the time has come, I think what he's trying to do for his audience is say, pay attention. Pay attention to what's being said today. Because what's being said today has eternal consequence. The Hebrew people, the Jewish faith, they were kind of immersed in different kinds of expectations of what's it going to look like and when is it going to happen and who is he going to be and how will it transpire. And he's saying, listen, the time has come. I am it. The time is now. You need to pay attention now to what I am saying. This is Jesus speaking, but I hope you pay attention to what I'm saying. But you need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying right now because the time has come. That's what I think he means by that. Then you have this idea of the kingdom of God is near. And you may be surprised, but, but books have been written on this idea. So there certainly is a variance of opinion. This is the best way I think it can be understood, is rather that the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is upon us, or the kingdom of God is, is uh, around us, not in a temporal sense, not like the kingdom of God is near, as though tomorrow the kingdom of God will be here, but it's not here today. Not in that sense, more in, a, in, in the presence of God's sense. The kingdom of God is drawing close to mankind. That's a, a good way to understand it. That right at this very moment when Jesus is speaking, he's saying the kingdom of God is so near. It is not far. Is how it should be. That teaching should be embraced. And certainly for Jesus, when he says that, he is the kingdom of God. He's the king of the kingdom. And so when he says that there is a, a literal truth to the fact that he is near those to whom he's speaking. Jesus is near them. I mean, it, just imagine what he's trying to say is, look, look at me. Listen to me. The kingdom is so close to you, you could reach out and touch it. And then this idea comes up. He says, therefore, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Now, it's here I want to spend a little time because I want to connect it a little bit with last Sunday. Last Sunday, we set out to understand what does it mean to make the path straight for the Lord in the words of John the Baptist, which is in the words of Isaiah. What does it mean to make a straight path for the Lord? And we talked about how that idea was the, was the theological idea of, of making repentance a central fixture the central fixture towards drawing close to the Lord. That among the, many, the myriad of things God intends to do for our lives, they hinge on us repenting and turning to Him. But today it's, it's listed in a different way. It, uh, last Sunday it was listed in context with sin. In fact, it says, John the Baptist came offering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see how closely it's connected to sin? Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now listen to what Jesus says. He says the time has come. He says the kingdom of God is near. And somehow that teaching is supposed to breed repentance. The time has come. The kingdom is near. Therefore repent. Now that... That may sound a little different. And so what I want to do is I want to take the idea of repentance and just kind of twist it a little bit and look at the same idea but from a different angle. We should think of repentance this way. Repentance literally means to turn. To turn away from or to reorient yourselves. So the idea of repentance 
is that when you're going in one direction, you, by realizing the direction you're going, you turn and you head in a different direction. It's more than simply going in a direction, a sinful direction, getting there, realizing it's sinful, and not doing it anymore. It's not stopping. It's turning. It has to do with an orientation. And this, this connects with the idea of the kingdom of God. Listen, the kingdom of God is near, and that is what that is what Jesus is saying should cause us to change our orientation is the presence of the kingdom of God. That's why it's good news. It's, repentance feels sin-absorbed when it's simply observing what you've done wrong and trying not to do it anymore. That is not the wholeness of the biblical idea of repentance. That's the biblical idea of stopping. Repentance is turning. It's you observe that the kingdom of God is near and that you are not oriented towards the kingdom. And so in orienting yourself towards God, you turn away from your sin. Turning away from your sin is a product of repenting towards God. I think we get this wrong. All the time I think we get this wrong. Some people say they're sorry, but they do not turn away from their sins. To which I can confidently say they are not sorry. You're not repentant and you get zero credit. That if you're truly repentant, you turn from your sin. So many of us get that wrong at various times in our life. That's the easy one to understand. Here's a different one to understand. Some people, find, they, they, they see their sin for what it is, and so they become very sorry and very, and very heartbroken and mournful over the sin, but they cannot fully repent because they, they do not know how to turn to the kingdom of God. In other words, they see their sin with clarity, but they do not feel the warmth of the rays of God on them. So they do not know where to turn. They, they look down on their cold sin, but they don't feel the heat of God blazing their back. And so there's no good news in the repentance. There's just penitence. This is the essence of, of what we call in this neighborhood Catholic guilt. This idea of stumbling upon your unrighteousness, but not having anywhere to go with it. But repentance is feeling the kingdom and realizing as we turn towards the kingdom what we're turning away from and why. That's why Jesus Christ says, repent and believe the good news. It's good news. This is, there is a bright discovery in repentance. You're discovering the beauty of Christ, and because of that, you're, you're turning away from what you were formerly. That is repentance. And I, wanna, I just want to work on that idea a little more because we've, we've committed in this sermon series to kind of break the jar called Gospel Open and talk about it as good news. What is the real broad good news? What is it really? And I think we need to appreciate repentance as it's turning towards God, and in, in doing that, you turn away from sin. But if God's not your fixture, you're going to turn away from sin and fall right back into it. You're just going to loop around. What are you turning to is the question. Well, I hope this guides us here in, in a moment. Um, Read with me now the story. 16 to 20. 
As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Can you find a more brief account in Scripture? It hardly feels real. I was doing a Bible study with somebody this week. His sons are enamored by, they're in the Star Wars phase, which is uh, common. And he says to me, he says, when I read this account, it sounds to me like some Jedi mind trick. As though Jesus is walking along the shore in a long brown cloak and a white beard, and he looks at somebody and he goes, follow me. And they just, you know, because of their weak-minded, you know, they kind of follow Jesus. Those are not the fish you're fishing for. You know, these are not the fish. Come follow me. That's kind of, if you read this with the assumption that, that all the information is before you, it's hard not to have this feeling about what is Jesus doing. I mean, really? How do you walk alongside of a lake and just go follow me? And people leave their father? James and John left their father with these words, follow me. That just doesn't happen. And when we think that's what's happening... Sometimes we just disconnect from the story altogether because it, we have no human connection with it. So, I, I, not so quick. Before you disconnect, put your thumb here and go to Luke 5. I'll read you the real story. The other story. A slightly more detailed account. I think it's page 719, 714, if you're using one of our Bibles. All right, this is it. I'm going to read 1 to 11. Just very quickly, I want you just to listen. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled the boats so full that they began to sink. Isn't that great? When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at, at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Free and Hall, his companions, were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee and Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, before we talk about the details of it, I want want you just to focus real quick on what Peter does when 
after Jesus does this marvelous work, he falls on his knees and he, and he cries out to the Lord, go away, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. That is the essence of the kind of repentance that is based upon the nearness to the kingdom. This is it. Jesus is in his boat. Or at least Jesus is commanding this. This massive thing happens in light of the preaching of Christ, in light of the truth of Christ. The, the kingdom is so near to Peter that when this happens, what does, it, what does it cause in his life? It causes heartfelt repentance. Did anybody say to Peter, you're a sinner? Did anybody call a sin out? No. What happened is, is Peter is coming to realize who Jesus is at least in some small way, and in the truth of what Jesus is teaching, and in doing that, he's realizing his sin. That, that is this idea of repentance. But, but what I want us to focus on in, in light of the story are the details here. This is not a Jedi mind trick going on. Right? Jesus has been preaching all day. James and Peter and John, they fish all night. The sun comes up, they pull back in, they're washing their nets, they're scrubbing things off because they've had a long, hard day. Meanwhile, Jesus comes and he's along the shore and he's preaching to the people. And he's preaching to the people the good news. Now certainly, Peter, James, Andrew, and John are listening. It's hard for me to imagine cleaning nets with the keynote, famous, empowering speaker who preaches life and truth with power and the Spirit right beside you. No, ah, whatever. Right? They've got to be listening. They've got to be engaged. They've got to be enthralled by the teaching. And so many people gather, so many people throng around Jesus that pretty soon he's, stand, he's probably staring at a wall of six or seven people and there's a big crowd that he can't even kind of engage with. So what does he say? He says to Peter, hey, let me get in your boat. We'll push off 30 feet or so in the water and then I can engage the crowd then the crowd can see me. And I can speak to the crowd in a more effective way. And so Peter does that. Now think about this. Peter is sitting at the oarlocks of a boat with Jesus preaching. This is not a Jedi mind trick. He's listening to the words. He's listening to the truth. He watches and observes this miracle occur. All of this is happening. There's thought and there's emotion. There's conviction. There's the work of the Spirit. All of this is happening to bring Peter to the place where when Jesus says, come, he follows. But if we turn back to Mark, it sounds this way. Jesus walks by, says, come, follow me. And Peter leaves everything. So what do we do with Mark? That's the question. Do you take your red pen and draw a diagonal line through Mark 16 through 20, and say, see Luke 5? Is that what we do? I mean, do we really look, do we, from this point on, say, every time we get to Mark 1, 16 through 20, say, well, but a better, a better account is in Luke. Are we allowed to say that? If all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful and truthful and effective, how can Luke sit on top of Mark? Somehow the account in Mark has to sit beside the account in Luke. In fact, Luke was not there. And Peter, who is the impetus behind the Gospel of Mark, this is autobiographical. 
So in, at the very least, that should give some attention to Mark. So what do we do in this case? I think, I think the challenge here is, what do we think the story is trying to tell us? That's what we need to focus on, is what is Mark trying to tell us through his brevity? Let me read the account again. This time I want you to listen to the motion and the kind of action that's coming out of this, because this is so consistent with the Gospel of Mark, but it's especially good here. Just listen to this. The time has come. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe. Do you hear that? The, it's, it is a moment of action. It's saying, right now, repent and believe, because the kingdom is near. And then it says this. As Jesus was walking, already the story is being moved. It's being carried along the side of Galilee. He comes up to Peter and he says, follow me. And it says what? At once they left their nets and followed him. You see the imperative and then you see this motion. Again, in verse 20, it says, without delay, Jesus Christ said, follow me. And what does it say of John and James? They left their father in the boat with hired men and they went. I think what Mark is trying to describe to us is not the details of the account. I think he's trying to describe to us the point of the story. And this is the point. This is what Mark wants you to know. That when Jesus called Peter, James, and John, they followed. They followed. When Jesus called them, they followed. Now there was discovery and there was listening and there was learning and there were questions and there was repentance and there were all the things that are in our normal lives, right? We know that from Luke. This was no Jedi mind trick. But I'll say this. When Jesus Christ said, come, they followed. And I have to say, I'm curious. I'm curious if Mark were writing our story, what it would read. If Mark were writing your story, how would things boil down for him? Would it say, when Jesus called, you followed? Or would it be kind of like the brother running to the parent? When you come before the throne of God, and God says, so, so, so explain to me what happened. Are you going to be like, well, I had these issues in my life. And then at my church, I got hurt by my church, and there was this family that hurt my feelings, and there was hypocrisy, and my family heritage didn't make it conducive for me to understand the truth of God, and I never had a father figure to understand what the God the Father is supposed to look like, and there was this thing this one time that hurt my feelings this way, and then there was this other thing, and this other thing. And I think at one point the Lord's going to say, Mark, when Jesus called, did they follow? That's the point. At some point, God is going to have to say to you, I don't care. How much does he have to express his care for us as people? He sent his son for you. He lived and died for you. He walked a perfect life for you. He healed the blind so that you might have faith in his power. He's given his spirit to you. He's given his church to you. At some point, God is going to say, Mark is going to write your story and not Luke. When I called, did you follow? I'll make a deal with you. 
particularly to those of you who are on the fringe of the faith, who don't know whether you're a Christian or not, or asking questions, here's my deal to you. I will resist the pastoral desire, my preacher boy temptation, which is strong right now, to say to you, today Jesus is calling. I feel it. But I will not say it. I will acknowledge that Jesus calls in his own time. I don't call you to the kingdom. The Spirit calls you to the kingdom. And this may not be it. You may not understand. You, this may not be the place. You may not be at that place where the Spirit's saying, I'm calling, are you coming, or aren't you? So that's, that's my contract to you. I will not place this guilt trip on you that today is the day. It might not be the day. Although I say the word preached today preaches. But maybe it is not your day. So can't say it categorically, but it's a deal. So that's my side of the bargain. This is your side of the bargain. Search your own soul. Why would you not want to do this anyway? Search your soul. And ask yourself, are you ignoring the call of Jesus? Is he calling, and are you not following because of the noise, of, of the story you want to tell in your life, of, of, of the ways that you think things should have played out, but they're not? What is holding you back? That's what I want you to ask. Look at your own life. Look, I'm not going to say today is the day, but you've got to not say that today is not the day. And you've got to look at yourself and wonder, why are you not, why are you rejecting Jesus? Is it not rejection? Do you have questions? If you have questions, I can help you find answers. People here can help you find answers. There's truth that's here. I, I just want us to be honest about why we're not coming because Mark is going to write your story and not Luke. Maybe you don't understand what it means to be a follower. And so we'll talk about that. What does it mean to be a follower? If you're asking this, I want to say there's two things being a follower is not. When Jesus says, come follow me, this is not, this is not what he means. Now, I'm going to qualify this in a second. It is not the same as belief. Now, to God, it is the same. To God, belief and following are synonymous. But on earth, we have made a mock of the word belief. So let me clarify it. If you cognitively believe that all of these things that we say, that we put in the jar called the gospel, if you cognitively believe them, but they have not called you to turn towards God's near kingdom and repent from your sins as you turn towards Christ, you are not a follower. You're not a follower. You're a harder category to preach to than the person who is a self-proclaimed non-Christian. Because you think you're on board. I don't know how to say this in a way that those people who know they're not, know they're not. Those people who think they are, think they are even though some of you are not. If you say you believe, but your life is not following after Jesus, you do not believe. You don't. To God, they are synonymous. We cannot tout grace through faith by faith alone, and it suggests that faith is all alone. Faith follows. So that's the first thing that a follower is not, is not someone who simply says they believe. 
This is the second thing it is not. A follower is not somebody who is a fisher of men. What does Christ tell us to do in the scriptures here? What does he say? What's his command to Peter? He says to Peter in 17, he says, come follow me. That's what Peter has to do. Come follow. What does Jesus have to do? Jesus has to make him a fisher of men. Peter's job is follow. Jesus' job is to make him a fisher of men. And we have people here who aren't following Christ because they say, I don't know enough. I can't do enough. I'm not talented enough. I don't know what my gifts are. I don't, I don't know where my role is. And I'm here to say, you don't find those things out so that you can follow Christ. You follow Christ so that he can make you who he intends you to be. You follow. Peter, Peter is at the very beginning, at the genesis of his life with Jesus Christ. And he makes a thousand mistakes that we get to read about on the way to becoming the rock of the church. He is not a fisher of men here. He's a fisherman. That's all he is. And what has happened? Jesus slowly begins to mold him and shape him. Even through his sin and denial, Jesus brings him back up and shapes him again and fixes him again and over and over again and over and over again until at Pentecost, Peter is the one who's proclaiming Jesus Christ and thousands are coming and he's fishing men with breaking nets at Pentecost. But it does not happen now. You follow and then you are made into who God wants you to be. So, We are not followers because we just believe. And we do not have to become fishers of men to be followers. We just follow. And so this is what what it means to be a follower. Very shortly, I would describe it this way. To be a follower suggests that the disposition of your heart desires that God would lead you and that he would participate with you in daily life. That should be your heart's disposition. It should be your disposition that yearns to be closer to the kingdom, more near to the kingdom. It should be your disposition, your heart, that desires to be more like Christ. If that is you, you're a follower. If your life is being oriented by the kingdom, in other words, you may fall, you may trip, but you're falling and tripping while you're trying to keep your sights on the kingdom of God. If that's the case, you're a follower. You may not do it well, that's okay. You're a follower. You're going to do it better. You're going to get better at this hand-eye coordination in the faith. The longer you practice, but you're a follower. God calls us to follow after him, to orient ourselves, to direct our attention, and by doing so, to turn away from our sin. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll close with this question for our church. How does our church follow Christ? Is our church following Christ faithfully? I don't don't exactly know how to answer. Maybe it's not the best thing to do is to ask a question you can't answer. I'll say this. It's not for me to lay some kind of capstone judgment on this church. That's God's job. But I do feel the burden of critical self-examination. That Pastor Terry and I regularly have to wrestle with, are we being faithful and leading the church in a way that is following after Christ? We have to ask that question. 
And so I will say from the outset, I see many, many signs of health and of faithfulness and of desire to follow after Christ. And certainly many, many families and individuals who are engaged in followers and they are followers of Christ. So there are good things. I'm encouraged. Uh, I think the Lord would be happy with us. But I think if we were a church to whom he was writing, like in Revelation, he would say this to us. But I have this against you. I have this against you. And I think when I read verse 20, when I read verse 20 is where I get this conviction. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And I think that God would say, you work hard to follow after me, but I have this against you. You have sent the hired men, and you have stayed in the boat. Because I look at how generous this church gives to missions, and I'm th- I mean, who cannot be thrilled by it? Who cannot be thrilled that 20 cents on our dollar goes to kingdom work? Except for the fact that when I step back, I do not see the same intentional work of the church on mission. I see us giving to missions, but I do not see us equally engaged on mission. I see this massive degree of intentionality in funding the work of God, but I don't see the same... I'm I'm convicted. I'm convicted as your pastor. I'm convicted. And that's one of the reasons we're asking the marquistry question. Even if it's yes or no, hopefully it draws us closer to being on mission. Hopefully. Where are all these missionaries coming from? A factory? Why is our church not, doesn't have this, I can't even put the words together. We need to approach being on mission with God's kingdom with the same intentionality that we fund it. We have to do that. We cannot be about missions. Everything here is mission. Every single category in this church should be justified by mission. You know, if I look, if I look at our budget, I say the only strategic effort of this church, the intentional strategic effort of this church from specific kingdom outreach mission is Vacation Bible School. To which I say, praise God for Vacation Bible School, but I say it is one week of the year. Why would we want to stay in the boat? That's the sad thing. Imagine, imagine wondering, I could have been John. I could have walked alongside of Jesus Christ, but I stayed in the boat. And I sent somebody else. I don't want to fund someone else to walk alongside of Jesus if it's meant for us. I think we need to guard the way we teach and raise our children. We raise them to be smart doctors and lawyers and engineers and to fix things and to create things and to seek justice and to make fancy speeches and to teach fancy lessons. We, we have placed so much academic laurels and, and expectations on our children. 
You know who we should want to be like? We should want to be like Zebedee. Can you imagine Zebedee walking around heaven? People, that's Zebedee. His two sons were Jesus' best friends. That's what we should want. That's what we should try to raise. You know, sometimes I've, I've said to you before, what kind of name are we going to have in, Ze- in heaven? I hope it's Zebedee. I hope we get there and they say, there is Zebedee who raised children who left me with hired hands. I will resist the temptation to say today is the day because it's not, it's not my right, it's the right of the Spirit. But I will say this, if Mark, when Mark writes your story, what will it say?